let's turn to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our trek through the gospel of Matthew. And we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and more specifically, we've been looking the last few weeks at the Lord's Prayer. You've heard me mention the fact that the Lord's Prayer is the center of the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's not by accident. That's not uh, happenstance. Remember how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. He begins with an invitation. And he says, do you, do you want to be happy? Who doesn't? Do you want to live the good life? Everybody wants to live the good life. Do you want to have joy? Do you want to flourish? Do, do, do you want it to be well with your soul? And Jesus says, then, then come with me and begin to align yourself with me and the priorities and values of my kingdom and we've said that if you could distill the Sermon on the Mount down to one word, it would probably be righteousness. And by righteousness, what we don't mean is the alien righteousness of Christ that he credits or deposits to our account by which he accepts us as righteous in his sight. And that's crucial, it's foundational, but that's not the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. The word righteous literally means, in the, in the Greek, it's teleos, it literally means to be wholehearted, to be the same on the inside as we are on the outside, for there to be a consistency, a constancy, that we are not living fragmented spiritual lives, that we're not spiritually schizophrenic, that we're not one thing on the outside and another thing on the inside. Remember, Jesus' charges of hypocrisy to the, to the Pharisees was not simply that they said one thing and did another. That's our common misconception of hypocrisy. That is hypocrisy. But it was the fact that they did the right things outwardly for all the wrong reasons. They prayed, they gave, they fasted in order to be seen by other people, to be approved, to, to, to be elevated in the eyes of men. And Jesus says that is not the way of the kingdom. That is not the path to righteousness. And if you think about oftentimes what is it that makes us unhappy? What is it that makes us discontent or, or sort of living under a burden of sin and guilt? Is it not oftentimes that we're not the same inwardly and outwardly? We know there's a discrepancy. We, we know there's a gap between who we are and who God has called us to be. And Jesus says, if that's you, pilgrim, if that's you, citizen of the king, then let me invite you in to this pathway of prayer. And so if, if happiness is found through righteousness, wholeheartedness, Jesus is telling us that wholeheartedness happens through the daily communal life you and I have together with our Savior. You don't just wake up one morning by happenstance and be wholehearted. You don't swerve into it. It doesn't happen by accident. It only happens by the grace of God as we come into communion with him, with Christ, through prayer. And that's what Jesus has been teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. So just as a, as a bit of review, remember there are six requests in the sermon. And they're kind of divided into three. Last week we looked at the first three. Those are the vertical dimensions. They relate to God's glory. 
This is when we're praying for his name to be hallowed and for his kingdom to, be co to come and his will to be done. But then there's three what we would call horizontal requests. And these just relate to our daily lives, our daily needs, our relationships. And those are the three we're going to look at this morning. Remember, these, this is not meant to be an exhaustive prayer. This is not meant to just be a rote prayer. It's to be a, a template, a model, a foundation from which all of our prayers are to flow out of in one way or the other. And, and remember I said last week, we ended our time by saying, hey, if you're struggling with prayer, as we all are, in other words, 90% of us say we struggle with prayer, the other 10% are lying, honestly, right? Okay, this is true. The Lord's Prayer gives us such a great place to start. It gives us such a model and a template. And that's where we're going to go this morning. So if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read God's Word together. Matthew 6, we're going to be in verses 7 through 15. Jesus is speaking, and he says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Lord, as your people, we're coming to you and we're, and we're confessing we struggle with this. We struggle to live daily lives lived in dependence upon you. And so, Father, just as sort of a, a form of spiritual smelling salts this morning, wave this prayer under our nose and our hearts to remind us that we are dependent upon you for everything. Lord, help us this summer season to grow in the discipline of prayer. Lord, we want to walk closely with you, but we need your help. Lord, there's so much to distract us, so many things that um, consume our time and, and draw us into busyness. And Lord, show us this morning that what we need most of all is you. And so, Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take your seats. All right, we're looking at these last three requests this morning. And not surprisingly, I've turned these last three requests into three points, alliterated for your enjoyment. So here we go. We're going to talk about food, faith, and forgiveness. Food, faith, and forgiveness. Those are the three, and they correspond to the three requests of this prayer. Let's start with food. Let's look at verse 11. It's something that you've probably prayed at the table growing up. You certainly prayed it as part of the Lord's Prayer. You've never really thought about what it means exactly. But Jesus says, Here, here's the first thing to pray for horizontally. Pray this. 
Pray to God to give us this day our daily bread. Now, let's be honest. We don't oftentimes think about praying for our daily provision. We don't wake up in the morning, most of us, and say, God, today, give me what I need. And the reason we don't do that is because we don't think we have any need. Now, now, theologically, oh, yes, 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 I know, Pastor Paul, all good things come from God, and in Him we live, move, and have our being, but experientially, it does not feel that way. Most of us have an ATM card, and at least half the time, there's money in the bank when you go to withdraw it, right? You have cars that have gasoline. You have refrigerators that have food. You, you generally don't live life day to day in terms of knowing where your next meal is going to come from. Now, many parts of the world do, but certainly for most of us, not us. It feels like we don't have any needs. It feels like we're doing just fine. We're, our bellies are full, our gas tanks are full, we're going about living our lives. Granted, there's a crisis every now and then and we hit the, hit the red button on that one. But let's remember, who was listening to this sermon? It was the people of Israel. And they, above all peoples, knew what it was like to depend upon God for their daily bread. Not only were they held captive by the Romans and utterly dependent upon them to make their life happen, but if you were a Jew and you were listening to Jesus preach this Sermon on the Mount and teach this prayer, and you would have heard this request to pray to God for him to give us your daily bread, our daily bread, you would have immediately thought about what? You would have thought about the wilderness. Re remember what happens in the wilderness in Exodus 16. God has just delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. And while they were slaves in Egypt, at least they had pots of food. At least they have meat. At least they had things to eat and drink. But once they cross the Red Sea and they are making that journey across the wilderness into the promised land, I don't know if somebody, it dawns on someone or someone just now realizes it's happening. It's like, well, that was all pretty awesome, God, but guess what? We don't have any food because God told them not to take any, remember? He said that was the whole idea of, of baking the unleavened bread, just bring enough for you to put in your backpack. But now their backpacks are empty and they begin to grumble and complain. Parents, your children say, you miss the Chick-fil-A exit, right? And they are begging to go back to Egypt. And this is what God says he is going to do in response in Exodus 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And so this is a very simple prescription and exhortation from God to the people of Israel. He said, listen, I know you don't have any food. So every morning when you wake up on the ground is going to be this thing called manna. It is literally going to be bread from heaven. Now, please understand, this is not wonder bread that you use to make your PB&Js, all right? That's fake, that's fake bread, right? 
This was the good stuff. This was wafer and honey and coriander seed. And I don't even know what coriander seed is, but it sounds amazing, right? Some of that fancy wedding reception food. And God says, you're going to get up in the morning and it's all going to be laid out for you and gather it up. But gather up just enough for one day, except the last day of the week or the next day, last day of the week. Then gather up two days because I don't want you working on the Sabbath. Of course, they completely ignore this very simple instruction. Look back at Exodus 16. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. In other words, don't gather more than you need for that one day. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Every college student's daily existence, right? It bred worms and stank. So they say, they didn't listen. They gathered more than they needed. And God's, God, what happened is that God literally made that manna be corrupted. Now, here's the question. It's the obvious question. Why do they have to gather daily? Surely it would have been much more efficient to gather weekly or monthly or build the storehouses. God, we can save so much time. We can save so much energy. If you simply let us gather as much as we need for as long as we needed it. Why daily? Because, I think you know this, he wanted them, the people of Israel, to wake up each and every day and understand fully and completely that they were utterly 100% dependent upon God and not themselves. This was their symbolic reminder. You know how we come to the table every week and it's a reminder for us that we fellowship with Christ, not because of us, but because of what he's done for us. This was, this was, the, same, this was the same idea. When they would get up every morning, what would they do? Thank God for their daily bread. Now what this request, I think, is wanting us to get in touch with is a deeper appreciation and understanding of just how supernatural our lives are. Because we live in a demystified culture, meaning we want to be able to explain things, everything in terms of facts, knowledge, science, things that we can measure, observe, take, take write down, take into account, explain. But God wants us to be in tune to this idea that it is, as Paul says in Acts 17, it is only in God that we live, move, and have our being. You see, we are prone as Western folks to kind of live out of sight, out of mind. We, we, we don't notice that something's not working anymore until it doesn't work. We don't remember how that money got there or where it came from or who earned it or who it ultimately belongs to. And so what does God do to people like us? He brings in his severe mercy. There's a loss of job. There's a financial gap. There, there, there's, a, there, there, there's issues to be resolved at work. There's, there's, remo there's car bills that accumulate. Um, there are global pandemics that happen. 
where all of a sudden the whole world simultaneously says, where is our bread going to come from? C.S. Lewis calls these severe mercies, meaning they are the spiritual smelling salt of the Christian faith to remind us of how we are sustained. It is not by bread alone. It is by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And let's be honest, it really stinks when you have to live that way, doesn't it? Because don't, who wants to be thinking about tomorrow's bread today? I, I don't want to be thinking about tomorrow's bread, Pastor Paul. I, I want to be an autopilot. I want to live and move and be autonomous and free and make my choices. I want my IRA to be at this point, at this time in my life, so I can do these sorts of things. I love the predictability. I love to think I'm in control. And God wants us to remember that all of that is an illusion. It is a deception. That what he's wanting us to get back to in this request is to ask God to open the eyes of our heart to remind us of how dependent we are on him. This is, this is hard, but listen to what John Piper has to say about this. The strength to live tomorrow will be given tomorrow, I love this, not today. See, a lot of us are consumed with what's going to happen weeks and months ahead of time. I don't have the grace for that, Pastor Paul. You're exactly right. And it will be given. Our task today, Piper says, is not to have the strength needed for tomorrow's burdens. Our task today is to live by the mercies given for today and to believe that there will be new mercies for tomorrow. Today's mercies do not include strength for tomorrow. They include faith that tomorrow's unseen mercies will be sufficient for tomorrow. And let's be honest, we don't like that. For I'll speak for myself, I don't like that. I want security and predictability and assurances. Now, all, by the way, this, this is... This does not say anything about the need to save and to be wise and all of those sorts of things. There's other scripture passages that speak to those things. What Jesus is saying is don't put your hope in those things. And when your security is taken away, and by the way, it will be for every single one of us at some point in our life. Whether it's your health, whether it's your money, maybe. Maybe it's relationships. See, a lot of times, we, this applies not just to physical needs. It, it, apply, it applies to personal needs. Pastor Paul, I, I don't know. I don't have the mercy and the grace to deal with this particular relationship. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't forecast where, where this is going. And God says, but I want you to, to focus on today. I want you to be prayerful today. I want you to be dependent today. So how should we pray then? I think Proverbs 30, 8 through 9 gives us a great word from the Lord. Listen to what David says. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? In other words, Sometimes God may not give you, give you that surplus that you really want because he wants you 
who really call out to him. By the same token, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, God, some of us, we, we really do need to be mindful that we need our daily bread today. And so God says, call out to me, cry out to me. Just a, just a little point of application before we leave this point. Where do you need to be reminded in your life that God's provision surely is daily? Maybe it's not your, your pocketbook, but for maybe, maybe for many of you it is. Maybe it's for your marriage. Maybe it's for your children. Maybe it's for some personal struggle. Maybe it's in some place that you're struggling to see the mercy and grace of God. And God says, just pray for today. So that's point number one, food. Let's look at request number two, forgiveness. Okay, look back at the text, verse 12. Jesus says, and secondly, pray this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this is an interesting request because what distinguishes this request from all the other requests is that Jesus, look down at verses 14 and 15, and we're going to unpack this in a minute, actually does a little excursus. He does a little theological aside about what he means by verse 12. So in other words, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And that is so important. Whatever Jesus means there is so important that he wants to take time in verses 14 and 15 after the prayer to explain himself, to clarify what this means. And so that's a signal to us that whatever is happening here, whatever Jesus means by this request, it's very, very important. He doesn't do that for food. He doesn't do it for physical needs, only for forgiveness. And we have to ask, why is that? Because if I was to take a, a poll in here and ask you, what do you think the biggest problem in our country is, or the biggest problem in the world, or biggest problem in our culture? And we'd probably get a variety of answers, and all of them might be right in some way or another. You, you might say, well, Pastor Paul, just the the onslaught, onslaught of the LGBTQ agenda and transgenderism and sexuality, that, that, that's one of our greatest threats. Some of you might say, well, it's, it's really the loss of personal freedoms. Others might say, well, no, 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 I think it's the violence inside the womb, like with, with, with abortion. Some of you might say, no, no, it's the violence outside the womb with, with gun violence. Maybe, it's, maybe you would say, no, it's, it's corruption in government and corporations or aggressive dictators who are trying to take over land. Or, or maybe your background, you would say, well, it's really the legacy of racism and discrimination that continues to impact me. And by the way, all of those are good answers, but they're not the ultimate answer. They're not the biggest problem. They're problems but they are simply symptoms of a larger problem. You have to go further upstream spiritually. The biggest problem facing mankind is not what's happening horizontally, although those are huge problems. It's what's happening vertically. See, when Jesus asks, tells us to ask God to forgive us our debts, and by the way, 
that is not a financial term, it's a relational term. It mean, it's, a, it's a metaphor for sins. Jesus is wanting to remind us that our most important need isn't simply for our daily bread. Our most important need is, is simply this, for daily forgiveness. See, what, what Matthew's gospel is gonna make clear is that Jesus came not just to model a good life or to give us a set of ethical reforms in the form of the Sermon on the Mount by which we can all be better people and live in a better world. Jesus is not simply a good teacher or a wise philosopher, but in fact, Jesus has come to die on a cross to reconcile us to God. Man's greatest need is to be reconciled by faith in Jesus to a holy God. And only as man is reconciled to God can there be any hope of what we would call lasting peace, lasting reconciliation, any kind of flourishing between the two. This request is binding these two things together. You, you, you can't have horizontal peace, real horizontal peace, Without vertical peace, that's our greatest need. And Jesus came fundamentally first and foremost to release us from the bondage of our debt to sin. This is why Jesus says this is the first thing to pray for. Lord, forgive us our sins. In other words, the sin committed between you and me. Now in saying that, Matthew's gospel is going to have much more to say further in. That's not his emphasis here. The emphasis here, interestingly enough, is the forgiveness that we have between one another. And Jesus says something very provocative in verses 14 and 15. It needs to catch our attention. It needs to catch us up short. Let's look at those two verses. And so this is his explanation for why this request is so important. Here's what he says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, there is a way to read this, wrongly I think, but there is a way to read this, that sort of treats this like an if-then statement. Remember, remember, you would learn those things in school, the if-then statement, the conditional statement. And, and, you, and some might say, well, you, you could read that to say, Pastor Paul, if, if you forgive others, if, then, and only then will God forgive you. There's sort of this one-to-one -one correspondence. And, and what happens when you read it that way, it makes horizontal, I'm sorry, vertical forgiveness dependent upon horizontal forgiveness. And clearly, I don't think that's the case because that's not the teaching of the gospel of the rest of the book of Matthew. It's, it's the opposite, right? Vertical forgiveness comes first. So, so what is Jesus saying here? And this is so important because this hits us right in the breadbasket, right? This hits us right where we live. There, there might be for many of us, pockets of unforgiveness and bitterness that are just kind of taking up residence in our hearts. 
there might be long-standing unreconciled relationships. There, there, there might be a place where, where we know God is calling us to forgive, but quite frankly, we don't want to forgive because it's too much fun to not forgive people, isn't it? I mean, it makes you miserable, but it's fun at the same time. It, give, it gives you a, a, unforgiveness is kind of like that, they're, they're like a partner. They go around with you and, and you don't want them there, but it feels uncomfortable not to have them there. A lot of us are living maybe in that sort of place. And so what is, what is Jesus saying there? It, it'll, it'll help us to remember, remember um, keep in mind, that the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like wisdom literature. What it does, it provides a vision for life, the wise life versus the foolish life. And I think what Jesus is laying out here is sort of an axiom, okay? And, and, and here it goes. Now, if you, if you have a counseling background or maybe you've been in counseling, you may have heard it said before that hurt people hurt people. Have you heard that? Meaning those who have undergone a lot of trauma, a lot of hurt in their background, oftentimes that hurt will come out in the form of interpersonal relationships. So if you've been hurt, you're sort of hardwired to hurt other people. And, all, and that, of course, that applies to all of us in some way or another. Jesus wants to give us a spiritual law here, and here it is. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. It's part of their nature. It's, it's something that flows out of who they are. The extent to which we do or don't forgive other people for their trespasses and sins is a barometer, it's an indication, it's a gauge on our own forgiveness meter of how much we know, understand, and experience the grace of God. So this is, this is an invitation from Jesus to say, are you struggling with forgiveness? Okay, good. The problem is not out there. The problem is right here. This, this, this is an opportunity to examine your own heart. And it's very wise. It's not as if God is, has his little whack-a-mole hammer from, from Chuck E. Cheese and you're, you're a born-again Christian and you know God's forgiven you, but you're really struggling with unforgiveness and God like box you on the head and says, well, no forgiveness for you. That's not the point here. The idea, rather, is to say, by the same token, if you're someone who claims to be a Christian forgiven by the grace of God, but yet your heart is impervious to forgiveness, your heart is hard and bitter and angry, it's very appropriate to say, brother or sister, have you understood the grace of God? Have you understood the, the, the limitless debt that God has released you from? This is such an important point, by the way, that Jesus returns to it later in Matthew in the form of a parable. And I want to read that parable quickly to you. Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lifetime of wages. That, that's, that's a king's ransom 
That, that, that's an uncountable amount of money. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, of course, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Understand, didn't say you've got 30 days or we're going to send Luca Brazzi to, you know, all that. No, no, no. This, this is, I, we forgive you totally. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, about a day's wage. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Now, you understand who you are in the story, right? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's a hard parable. That's a parable of, of warning, by the way. And when we wrestle with the unforgiveness in our own hearts, what Jesus is driving us back to is that the core problem with the wicked servant is not that he harbored unforgiveness and bitterness over the debt owed him. We all harbor that about something. The problem is that this was just a symptom of a larger issue. He did not understand the grace of his master. That's Jesus's point. Forgiven people forgive people. The servant had never internalized forgiveness. The servant had a heart that had never been changed, that had been impervious to the gospel. And all of us have to come to this point of saying, God, as far as it's up to you, Am I, am I at peace with all men? Because there's, there's, there's a lot of things that we, we're not saying here. One, recon, forgiveness is, pos, is always possible. Reconcilia, reconciliation isn't. In other words, all of us are in a place with whatever has happened to us, we are in a place of being able today, today, to release that to God. And to say, God, I'm not going to harbor anger. I'm not going to harbor bitterness. I know the debt I've been released from. Give me a heart of grace and forgiveness towards others. That doesn't mean necessarily there can automatically be reconciliation, right? Maybe there was abuse. Maybe there was violence. Maybe your perpetrator is dead. Maybe reconciliation is, un, is not possible because the guilty party has, is, is unrepentant. 
Those are different things that call for different levels of, of wisdom from the scriptures. But the one thing that is under our control today is that all of us can pray, God, forgive me my sins. And by your grace, may I forgive the sins of those who've been committed against me. And so if you're wrestling with unforgiveness this morning, let me just say, that's part of being a human. That's part of being, being living in a fallen world. But that's not where God wants you to stay. He wants you to call out to him. And say, God, give me your grace. Remind me of your grace so that I might, in some portion, be able to begin to release this from my own soul. So this is the second request for forgiveness. And lastly, and we're going to touch on this one just very quickly, there is a prayer for faith. Look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, we preached, I preach, when I say we, that means I. I preached a whole sermon back on Math, in Matthew 4 about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Remember how he was led out by the Spirit, and it was a temptation by Satan, and it was a test from God. And the temptation was, Jesus, abandon your mission. Jesus, bow down to me, Satan. Jesus, occupy an earthly throne. There's no need for you to go to the cross. This was the temptation which at the same time was a test. And, this, and the test was from God. The temptation was from Satan. And we preached a whole sermon on that. And so I just want to just say a couple of things. If you want to go back, please listen, watch that sermon. Uh, I, I want to say just a couple of things about what I think Jesus is asking us to pray for here. Remember, temptation and, and testing, they, it's the same word. And so does, you know, a lot of times when we are faced with something in our lives, we, we have to ask, is this a test or a temptation? And the answer is what? Yes. It's both at the same time. So one thing we know Jesus is not saying is that God does not tempt us. James makes that abundantly clear. When someone is being tempted, he should not say God is tempting him, okay? Okay. So it's not saying that it's possible for God to lead us into temptation. And we're praying he won't lead us into temptation. That's not what's being said here. What he's saying is that, is that every moment and opportunity in our life is an opportunity to either trust God or trust ourselves. You see, there, there, there's no neutral in the Christian life. A lot of us think most of our life is kind of neutral what I eat and where I go and what I do and how I spend my money and what I watch. Granted, Pastor Paul, there's a couple of big moral categories, right? I don't want to be faithful to my spouse and I don't want to steal money from my company. And, you know, there, there's some big things like that. But, but generally, what I do with the rest of my life is kind of up to me. And what we are praying in this is that we, as we go about our lives, we are praying Every opportunity in our, every occurrence in our life, every relationship, interaction, day at work, time with our family, time in our recreation, whatever we're doing is an opportunity to deepen our trust and dependence upon God. It is an opportunity 
to come and to draw closer to him, to grow in our faith. Because God doesn't tempt us, but what does he do? Oh, he tests us. And that testing has a divine purpose. That testing is to strengthen our faith. And so when we're confronted with a, with a moral choice at work or in our relationships, what we are praying, God, is that God may at this moment, this thing, be an opportunity to test the genuineness of my faith and may I be found faithful. May, may I follow my Lord Jesus Christ in obedience to him. Let it not be a temptation I succumb to. You see, God and Satan have a different design when it comes to suffering in your life. God wants to build you up, to strengthen you, and to lead you into perseverance. Satan wants to destroy your soul. And we're, what we're praying in this request is, Lord, let it not be that. Let it not be according to Satan's design, but let this be according to yours. See, I think as, as 21st century Americans, this one is particularly hard because it seems like so much of our life is lived in neutral, is lived in the gray, is lived in the middle. And God says, no, I, I want to awaken you to the reality that every moment of your life is an opportunity to grow in dependence upon me. It is, it is, we're praying, God, open my eyes. Lord, give me a spiritual mindedness. Let me pray with my eyes open. Let me not be deceived to Satan's schemes. Remember, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to conquer and devour. But Lord, remind me today of what your divine purposes are in my life. And so when there's suffering, when there's trial, I don't question you, but I do trust you. And I do call out to you. And let me just say as, I, as we wrap this up, because the summer is such a great opportunity for this. John Piper says the summer is for savoring. And here's what he means. Summer um, is just a, a change of rhythm, a change of, of pace, isn't it? It's a time where we get to, in a unique way, experience the gifts of God. Some of us are going on vacation. We're going to see family members. We're pulling away to be with children or spouses. There's friends, there's food, there's drink, there's vacation, there's relaxation. And in that comes an incredible opportunity, but an incredible danger. See, the opportunity is to say, Lord, Lead me not into temptation with this. Let me not make an idol of this, but let it deepen my walk with you. May I see your grace in everything. May I, may I see my humble dependence and the need for my daily bread in everything. And Lord, let it not be license to take the good gifts of God and make them the ultimate things and thus making them a bad thing. That's idolatry. The summer is a, is a great opportunity for camping out in the Lord's prayer and saying, God, reorient my heart to you. We said this last week, if you're struggling with prayer, and again, um, probably all of us on some level, the Lord's prayer gives us a great 
place to start. Not a temp, it, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a rote verbatim, that's not the, the, the exact wording is not important. It provides a pattern for us. God, let your will be done this season in my life. Lord, may, may you be honored and glorified in, in all that I do. Lord, make me aware of how much we're dependent upon you. Lord, forgive me of my sins and, and let me not harbor unforgiveness towards others. Lord, may I be tested and proven faithful in this season. Because that's why we come to the Lord's table, because it reorients our hearts. Just as Jesus walked in faith in the spirit in the wilderness and succeeded, even when he failed, he knew we would fail. That's why he had to go to the cross. That's why he had to lay his life down. That's why Jesus doesn't simply show us a way to pray and be. He does that. But when we fail to do it, he releases us from our debt so that we might know God and have forgiveness in him. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and to take a couple of moments to prepare your hearts as you think about this message in light of coming to the table. I'm going to ask our leaders to come prepare to serve the elements.